We've been studying unity for a while now in first or forgive me in Ephesians chapter 4 specifically. Uh, last week we had to take a little bit of a break from our discussion on unity as we uh, saw Paul's little side note about the Christ who ascended is also the one who descended and so we talked a little bit about Christ's descent into hell. But it's important for us now to get back on track with Paul's overall theme which is how Christians show that they are Christians by living in unity with one another. Paul began uh, this new sort of concept of unity in verse 7 which we read last week but I want us to read it again together today before we read our sermon text. So if you will please look at Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 with me. This is the important verse that sort of establishes the context that we're now in. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So here, Paul slightly pivots in his conversation on unity. He is still discussing unity, but he now has turned his attention to remind us that unity does not require us all to be exactly alike. Great unity can still exist among a great amount of diversity. In fact, what Paul's going to show us here is that there is a certain kind of diversity that actually helps us become more unified. We are called to be unified, but that does not mean we are called to be the same. One expression that I've heard before that I really like is that oneness is not sameness. Oneness is not sameness. We need to be unified. We need to come together as one. But Paul wants to make sure you don't think that what that means is that every single one of us needs to become a carbon copy of the next person. That there's no room for any kind of diversity or differences between us. And Paul is going to show that that's not the case. And we know that because Christ gives different gifts to his people. We learned that in verse 7. So let's now see our sermon text. We are going to be reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, thus saith the Lord. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. The first thought that comes to my mind when we read a passage like the one we just read is to me, and I don't mean any disrespect to the Word of God or to Paul here, but this is just one of those passages that seems a lot more complicated than it actually is. This is a passage that I think seems much more complicated than it actually is. At first reading, I think this passage feels kind of chaotic. 
And the reason for that is Paul just has so many different metaphors and, and imagery here. It's, I, I describe it, it's almost like he just took a big bag of metaphors and dumped them onto a page here. So we're just moving from one metaphor to another, one different description of the same thing to another. And again, it can feel a little confusing. It can feel a little chaotic. But I am under the impression that all of these different metaphors and expressions are really all pointing us to one very simple and one very same thought. That under this pile of descriptions is actually a pretty simple thought. And so I'm going to give it to you up front. What I believe is the best way to summarize our passage today is to say this, that Christ equips Christians with different spiritual gifts in order to progress the church into perfect unity and holiness. Let me say that again. Christ equips Christians with different spiritual gifts in order to progress us, to move us forward, to move the church forward into perfect unity and holiness. In short, Christ wants us to be unified and holy, and he does that by giving us different spiritual gifts that when they work together, help get us to that goal. And so I want us to see how Paul is pointing us to this understanding with th from basically three different angles. It's not three different things, it's just three different metaphors, three different angles that are all pointing us to the same idea. And the first one is through a growth metaphor. Paul uses a growth metaphor. He describes how Christ is using spiritual gifts to grow the church by comparing us to a human body that has to be formed and grown. We see this a little bit in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. So he talks about how we need to think of our progress in the Christian faith as a body physically growing. And the way he really comes back to this is in verses 15 and 16. Read those verses with me again. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So here's where Paul takes that body metaphor, growth metaphor, and gets really, really explicit with it. By the way, he also uses the idea of describing the church and its unity and diversity as a functioning body in 1 Corinthians 12. So you can mark that down, maybe read that chapter tonight because he's very, very explicit about it there. This is a favorite analogy of Paul. He wants you to think of the Christian church like a body being formed in the womb, being born, and then growing to its greatest size. He describes us first and foremost as all being connected to the head, and so the metaphor is sort of functioning like this. Your body is essentially controlled by your head. Your head is the command center. Your hands move where your brain tells it to. Your feet walk where your brain tells it to. The, every joint of your body is ultimately receiving life and guidance from the head. And so Christ here, the head of the church, is functioning as the physical head of the body. He's the command center. He's the brains. And he is the one who is distributing authority and commandments and life and grace to the rest of the body. And the only way for us to receive what the head is inputting is for us like joints to connect together one to, one to each other and then all of us to the head. Right? If you were to cut your arm off, then your arm is no longer receiving whatever the head is trying to get it. 
It's been disconnected from the body. And so we all come together the way our bodies are formed and brought together so that we can receive life and grace from the head. And the more we receive life and grace from the head, the bigger we grow. So Paul is using this idea of a physical growing body to describe what Christ does with his church. Christ is the leader of a church which when it began was a little disassembled and the head came in and put it together and he's now communicating grace and life and laws to it and through that communication we grow together. And so in the same way that you have different body parts, there's a diversity to your body parts, right? Your feet are not your hands. Your mouth does something different than your ears do. Your nose do something different than your kneecaps do. So there's a great amount of diversity in your body. A lot of different parts that are not the same. But that diversity it comes together in a united way to serve one united purpose. So Paul's saying that's what the church is. You and me are different. We have different gifts and different personalities. And we don't have to become copies of each other. The, the nose doesn't have to become the toe for us to have unity, but we do need to find a unity and be under the lordship of Christ, and then our differences can work together toward unity. So he uses an analogy of growth, but he also uses a similar analogy, that of maturation, of not just a person's body growing, but the person himself becoming a more mature person. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, right? So he's talking about the end goal of the Christian life, metaphorically speaking, is we need to grow up. We need to be adults. We need to be... And by the way, here he's speaking of us corporately. We don't need to individually be adults. The church as a unit, the unified church needs to grow up. We need to be men. We need to be an adult, right? And he continues with this train of thought to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children. Let's stop there. So you see in those two verses, the comparison between mature manhood and children. So he's using this metaphor of maturation. Christ gives gifts to the church so that we will progress towards holiness. And he's saying, metaphorically, think of how when you're a child, you're immature and you have to grow up. You have to mature into a full-grown man or a full-grown woman. This, by the way, becomes the foundation, among other verses, of why sometimes within evangelical spheres, when someone is a brand new Christian, we'll sometimes refer to them as a baby Christian. And that's not an insult. Right? I know maybe to the outside world that might sound like we're making fun of someone and mocking them. But it's not an insult. It's, it's no more insulting than it is for me to say my son is a baby. It's just, it's just true. You're brand new. Right? You've just been born again. And so every single person, every single Christian, when you are first born again, you are born into a state of spiritual infancy. And the goal of sanctification, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to grow up spiritually. So we will sometimes describe people as being spiritually immature. And in some contexts, that might be insulting. But in many contexts, that's not an insult. That's We all began spiritually immature. That's where everyone starts. But then we grow by the grace of the Spirit. And here, Paul is saying the same thing that we say about individuals of the whole church. The whole church essentially began as a baby, as a, ch as a child. And Christ is giving these different gifts through the power of the Spirit. And these gifts help us to grow up to stop being children, to stop being a baby church, and to be a mature, full-grown, well-grounded, successful adult. 
But here's where Paul makes things even more confusing. He tells us that he doesn't want to be children, which is a metaphor. And then he describes why is it bad to be children. He describes that by immediately shifting to a new metaphor. And so this is the third angle Paul comes at it. He gave us a growth metaphor. He gave us a metaphor of maturation. And now he gives us a travel metaphor. Or specifically, in verse 14, a sailing metaphor, right? What, what does it mean to be a child? How do I know if I'm spiritually immature? Well, and here's how he describes it. Look at verse 14 with me. So that we, we may no longer be children. Well, what do spiritual children, what are they like? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul knows a sign of spiritual immaturity is not being well grounded. And what that means is that any teacher who even sounds like a Christian can come in and, and easily deceive you. An immature Christian is one who is, who's, who's very gullible. It's very easy to persuade this Christian to believe Christian doctrines that are not actually Christian doctrines. One of the surest signs of spiritual immaturity is like a ship without a rudder. A rudderless ship that's out on the sea is just going to go wherever the waves take it. And it's just going to go wherever the wind blows it. And that is the metaphor that Paul is saying is a bad state for our church to be in. Both as individuals and as a church, we don't want to be like the kind of church where, okay, there's a new cultural hot topic and we're going to go there. Oh, there's this new fancy belief. We're going to follow it. We just, we go wherever the culture tells us to go. We go wherever these false teachers tell us to go. And that's terrible. We want to have a rudder. A mature church is able to stay the course and get to its definition even in the midst of storms. And so he uses this, this travel, this sailing metaphor to describe Christ using gifts to guide the church and get us to our destination even in the midst of storms. By the way, uh, Paul had this very concern for lots of Christians, not just the Ephesians. For example, Drew, I, I hope the slides don't mess up on us, but if you'll click over one slide, sorry about that. We have from 1 Corinthians 14, I want you to re uh, read this with me. And forgive me, I, I actually messed up the, the link. That should be um, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11. I, I must have made a mistake there. This is from 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, so you can mark that. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. You see the similar language here of deception and being easily swayed into something that sounds Christian, but it's really not, right? Paul is saying, I'm worried about you because I preached Jesus to you and you were filled with the spirit, but now I'm hearing rumors that you're believing all of these deceptive teachers the way Eve believed the serpent who are telling you about Jesus, but you don't have the maturity to know that's the wrong Jesus. And you're being filled with these emotions and these passions and these gifts, and you don't have the maturity to know that that's not the Holy Spirit. And they've given you a gospel, but you don't have the maturity to know that that's not the same gospel that I preach to you. Do you see, this is what Paul is talking about. This is not a good place for any individual, local church, or universal church to be in. 
where we're just so easily swayed by deception into false gospels and false Jesuses and false spirits. And so, back to Ephesians, this is the point then. The purpose of spiritual gifts is to mature us so that our ship can stay on course and reach its destination even through the storms. But this all begs the question, right? And the question being begged here is this. Where are we sailing? How big does our body need to grow? What does mature manhood look like? How do we know we've gotten there? Right? So we've talked about the metaphors of, of progress and movement, but we need now to look at how does Paul describe the end goal? What are we trying to get to? Or a better way of saying it, what is Christ using our spiritual gifts to get us to? Well, again, the reason this passage is chaotic is Paul gives a number of answers which are all essentially the same thing. So he begins in verse 13 by saying we need to find the unity of faith. Read verse 13 with me. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We're going to focus just on the unity of faith. This is a full and perfect knowledge of Christianity. The end goal of all of this growing, of all of this maturing, of all of this sailing, is knowing the fullness of God's revelation. This includes, by the way, our pattern of life. You see, in Scripture, there's always a tight connection between the faith and how we live. Because the faith is what creates our lives and guides our lives and determines how we live. So the unity of the faith doesn't just mean that we will agree on Christian doctrines, but it means that we will live out our lives the same way. We will agree on ethics and we will pursue the same ethics. The unity of the faith is a perfect knowledge of the faith and of its practice. And that's the end goal of the church. That we would all think and act the same way. Another way of saying this, a different way of saying this, is uh, Paul's expression. So I, these are not two different things, but the same thing. He says the unity of faith, and he also says in verse 13, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. These are actually synonymous phrases. Because another way of expressing having a full knowledge of God's revelation is to have a full knowledge of Christ. Because God's revelation fully came to us through Christ and is only found in Christ. You can't know the fullness of God's revelation without knowing the fullness of Christ. God has revealed himself fully and finally and perfectly only in the Son, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. So to have a full knowledge of the Son of God is to have a full knowledge of the Christian faith. I have, if you'll turn to the next passage, Colossians 2, notice Paul makes this, so this is not Drew's fault. One more over. There we go. Paul makes this very clear in Colossians 2. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? Do you see the way he brings those together here? To know, to have a full assurance of the entire mystery of God is to have a full assurance of Christ. To know Christ is to know God's mystery because Christ is the revealer of God's mystery. So what is the end goal of all this sailing, of all this growing, of all this maturing? That we would have a perfect, full understanding of Jesus Christ, which would entail a perfect, full understanding of the Christian religion. This is, by the way, something we don't expect to happen on this side of eternity. 
This is a goal that we believe is heading us towards into the next life, that we will really not ultimately be there until we get to the next life. But without a doubt, this is the course that we are on. The Christian church is moving in one direction, and that is to a perfect, shared, full understanding of all that God has revealed in Christ Jesus. Which, before we move on, can we just stop for a minute and, and praise God for this epic journey he's put us on? Glory to God in the highest. Now, it's possible that we've confused ourselves again because we've gone through all of these different uh, descriptions. I mean, as a matter of fact, I, I think we even left off. Uh, he, he talks about the, the, the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ at the end of 13. Again, that's essentially saying the same thing, that we would essentially live up to Christ, that we would be filled with Christ, that we would be like Christ. So you see how Christ is the end goal of the church. We're working toward our head. We are being built up in our head. We are working towards a full understanding of him and a full being made fully in his image. Christ is the goal. And, and, and God, through Christ, through the Spirit, through spiritual gifts, is slowly but surely moving us all, the entire Christian church, conforming us more and more into the image of Christ, moving us more and more into the full measure of Christ. That's where we're heading. And so in case we've confused ourselves by talking about all these different, the fullness of Christ and the full mystery and the sails of the ship and the growing and the mature manhood, there's just so much chaos here. But let's just remind ourselves that the, the key thing we're looking at here is this idea of slow, progressive growth towards a goal. All of these metaphors, all of this chaos is, is just trying to get us to see this very simple point that through spiritual gifts, Christ is moving his church on this slow, progressive journey to this ultimate goal. Christ equips Christians differently to progress the church into perfect unity and holiness. That is the very simple message of, first, or forgive me, of Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16. And so let's do this. Given all of this focus and attention on the church what Christ is doing in the church, where he's taking the church. I think that the application of this, right? So we already have our main idea that Christ equips Christians with spiritual gifts to progress us to unity and holiness. I think there's one very obvious and very simple application to this text. How do I apply this text to my life? Well, the application is go to church. Very simple. Go to church. There is so much in here about Christ and his intimate relationship to the church. There's so much in here, not so much about what Christ is doing in your individual life, but as much as what he's doing with you and to you through and in the church. This entire passage is not about what Christ is doing up to a bunch of individuals in their isolated situations. It's about where he's pushing the church. It's about what he's doing when we are gathered together. What good is a spiritual gift if there's no one to practice it with it? Right? The whole concept of using spiritual gifts to progress the church entails that you're within the community of the church. So this is not so much a lesson for your personal life. This is a lesson for the church. This is an encouragement of what God is doing in the church. And so if you want to experience this, you need to join one. <laughs> you need to join it. I want us to see uh, all of the amazing things that is said about the church to, to, to stir our hearts because I, I know it's, it's easy just to, to slap people over the head with commandments. 
Stop doing this. Stop doing that. Go to church. Do this. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps, right? It's really easy. But what Paul does instead is, is, is he just speaks so highly of the church. And he speaks in such glorious terms about what Jesus is doing that we just can't help but want to be a part of it. Right? That, that, that's Paul's motive. He doesn't just come here and slap you, hey, go to church. Rather, he says, look at how amazing the church is. And naturally, we just, we want to be part of that. Right? So Paul has the, the right idea here. So let me just mention three things that Paul implies or says about the church to help stir us, to remind us of why what you're doing right now is so important. I know it doesn't necessarily feel important. 24 minutes and 20 seconds of listening to me talk and we're only two-thirds of the way done. But I promise you, it is. Why? Well, because number one, the church is indefectible. The church is indefectible. This means that the church cannot go away. The church cannot be conquered. That the church cannot lose. This is an implication, I would argue, throughout the entire passage that we read. But let's just, for brevity's sake, read again verses 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let me ask you, does Paul present this process like it's a hypothetical? Does he present this like this is something Christ is trying to do, but it might not work? We might not reach it. Satan might overthrow all of these spiritual gifts and wreck the church and then, and then God loses. No. Paul presents this as an inevitability. Christ is doing this until this happens. Christ is in control and he's working because he's going to make. There's this inevitable future coming. Us being perfectly united, that, I'm, I'm not saying that this is something that might happen if we give it our best try. It, it's going to happen. It's an inevitability. The church will reach its destination. It has to. Because Christ cannot fail, and he's the one steering the ship. The church is indefectible. Christ is in the process of accomplishing something, and he will not be thwarted. That's why Paul can say, this is what Christ is doing, and this is where it's going to end. We already know how it's going to end. It's not presented as something that might fail or may never happen. Now certainly, individuals can fall away from the church and certain churches can collapse. But the universal church, God's true people, it's an inevitability that he is going to get them where he has promised to take them. Which is the full measure of Christ, the full unity of the faith, the full knowledge of the Son of God. And so really what we're saying is I, I, I feel like a football coach uh, recruiting young uh, recruits, right? Well, anytime a football coach goes into someone's house, an 18-year-old's house, and he sits down with their parents, he never begins a sales pitch, you know, you should come to our school because we, we basically lose every game we play. We're, we're terrible. I'm not sure if the program's even going to make it. You think the kid wants to go to that school? Think he wants to play for that school? No. Even if, even if that's the case, the coach is always going to go in and talk about their accolades and, oh, we're making so much progress and you, you want to join this. And so what Paul is doing here is if, if you're considering whether church is important, if you're considering whether you should be involved in the Christian church, let me just tell you, it's going to win. It's going to. It's going to conquer all of her enemies. It's going to destroy everything in her path. The gates of Hades will not prevail against her. She will reach the fullness of God. This is a, a, a perfect team that cannot lose. You want to come be a part of it? 
right? That's what Paul is doing. This is an indefectible organization. Why would you not want to join? Come join the Christian church. It's indefectible. It's triumphant. By the way, just as a side note, you'll sometimes hear theologians describe the church in two ways. The church militant and the church triumphant. The church militant is describing the process of growing. We're on earth and we're fighting. We're, we're, we're soldiers in a spiritual warfare. But in heaven, when we reach our full maturity, then we are the church triumphant. It's not church militant and maybe church triumphant. It's guaranteed. When you join the church militant, you are on an inevitable trajectory to church triumphant. You're going to win. So you see how important church is. It's the only infallible, indefectible institution. But another thing, another encouragement Paul has for why you would want to join the church is because it's transformational. You're not just joining a winning team, but once you join, it's going to transform you from the inside out. It's going to improve you. You're not just jumping on board while everybody else wins. You are part of the process. You will be transformed. The local church, God gave you your local church to change you. He gave you your fellow church members to transform you, to grow you, and to mature you. Paul is very clear that the gifts which exist in the local church are given by Christ to make us new. And this means that you don't merely come to church to praise God. Now, of course, that's a good thing. You do do that, and we shouldn't be embarrassed by that. That's a great thing. We come to church on Sundays to praise God. That's what we're here for, but that's not the only reason we're here. We are not just here to praise God. We are here to interact with each other, practicing our spiritual gifts, and change each other's lives. We're not just here to worship God. We are also here to exercise our gifts and transform one another. In other words, you need to, think, you need to start thinking of Sunday mornings like this. You do not go to church to do something. You go to church to become something. You don't go to church to do something. You go to church to become something. Christ is using the gifts within the church to advance you toward the fullness of faith, the full measure of Christ. And Paul is clear that all the gifts in the church do this, but I want us to focus on, he, he just gives a short list of, of some of the gifts that, that he's thinking of, that he thinks that they need to hear about. So let's read some of the gifts that he gave. Verse 11, just to make sure we're all on the same page here. Verse 11, and he, speaking of Christ, gave the apostles. The apostles were the authorities in the church who revealed the word of God. And what we're going to see in all of the gifts that Paul gives is they're all focused on the word of God. We'll come back to that. But all of the gifts that Paul lists here are all focused on the word of God. Because the apostles, who were they? They were the ones who revealed the word of God. He also lists, verse 11, and the prophets. The prophets did the same thing. They revealed the Word of God. Now you might ask, well, what's the difference between them? Uh, just briefly, the difference between New Testament prophets and apostles was that the apostles was a permanent gift while the prophets were a temporary one. And what we mean by that is the apostles were everywhere and always infallible authorities when it came to religious doctrine. There was never a time when you could ask Paul a question about Christ and the faith and he would give you a wrong answer. 
The apostles were always speaking the word of God on religious matters and they were always infallible. New Testament prophets would sometimes receive a prophetic word, but they were not in that state constantly. Right? You could ask them a question. They say, I don't know. I've never received the prophetic answer to that. But Paul would always have the answer, right? You see the difference? So prophets, they did reveal the word of God, but they were still subordinated to the apostles because of the temporary nature of their gift. We have an example of this. And um, if you'll go over two, a couple slides, I, I don't know if this is my fault. Will you go, I'm sorry, go back. Maybe I forgot it. Is there a slide from... Uh, Go, oh, this one. So I started with the wrong one. Forgive me. So that's, that's where I'm, I may have confused you guys earlier. I apologize. This is not a good day for technology. 1 Corinthians 14, read this with me. This is Paul writing. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or a spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Do you see Paul placing himself over the prophets? In other words, if a prophet were to look at Paul and say, he's not a true apostle. And Paul were to look at the prophet and say, no, he's not a true prophet. Who should you believe? Paul. Paul's saying, my authority is absolute. Which is why the first test for if someone is a prophet or not, is if they're willing to submit to my authority. If they don't submit to me, then reject them. Then, then they will not be accepted by us as true prophets if they don't admit that I am the leader here, right? So we see that the apostles had a unique privileged position above the New Testament prophets and it was because of their permanent ongoing infallibility as prophets just randomly and irregularly received the word of the Lord. But nonetheless, the key point, this was important for us to clarify, but the key point is that the first two gifts, apostles and prophets, their job was to reveal God's word. Not everyone is able to do that. That's a spiritual gift. We can receive God's word and understand it, but you can't create it. You can't give it. This was something only given to the apostles and the prophets. They reveal God's word. But then he moves on from that to more what we call ordinary gifts. Not so much supernatural, but ordinary gifts. And the first one are the evangelists. Right? We've transitioned now from extraordinary gifts to ordinary gifts. I love John Owen actually said, The extraordinary gifts of the Spirit were used in the setting up of Christ's kingdom, but that kingdom is continued by ordinary gifts. I think it's a good summary. And so he mentions the first of the ordinary gifts are evangelists. Now, what is an evangelist? An evangelist is simply a person with the courage and the gifting to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. It's very simple. In other words, evangelists are those who declare the word of God. Prophets and apostles reveal it. Evangelists proclaim it and declare it. Anytime you proclaim or declare the word of God, you are functioning as an evangelist, which is why in one of the Timothys, uh, Paul actually tells Timothy that to preach and teach is, an, is fulfilling the office of evangelist. Anytime you declare the word of God or proclaim it, you are functioning as an evangelist. Now, this can confuse some people. I think that evangelicalism quite honestly, has um, really abused the notion of evangelism. Uh, there is a sense, like I, I, there's a famous quote from, I think, Charles Spurgeon, where I think he said, every Christian is either an evangelist or a fraud. And uh, I, I don't agree with that. There is a sense in which we are all called to be evangelists. And that is, um, I'm sorry, I have these out of order, but if you'll go to the first Peter one. 
1 Peter 3.15. So look at what Peter says here. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this is kind of a key apologetic or evangelism verse that people use. So there is a sense in which all of us are evangelists in that the Bible commands each and every Christian to be ready and able and prepared to share the hope of Christ with someone. Like if someone comes up to you on the street and says, you claim to be a Christian, but what is that all about? Why are you a Christian? You shouldn't go, whoa, 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 that's not my job, buddy. Right? You, you can talk to my pastor if you want to know why I'm a Christian and what Christianity is. I am not here. I am not an evangelist. I am not here to tell you about Christ. Right? No, so all of us are evangelists in a sense where we need to be ready at any moment to tell someone about the hope of Jesus. But I think Paul is talking about here not just this universal everyone's an evangelist. I think the fact remains is that within the Christian church, there are people who are uniquely gifted to be active evangelists. Not just passive evangelists, just whenever someone asks me, I'm, I'll tell them about Christ. But they are going to actively pursue the lost and preach the lost. I think one of the big issues in evangelicalism is we've convinced, we, 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 we beat over everyone's heads that they have to be this kind of an evangelist. And we sort of make the mark of Christian maturity how often you evangelize. And Christians feel really terrible if they haven't, like, evangelized enough. Uh, but again, this, there's a dangerous thing in trying to force someone into a gifting that they may not have. Um, but that's a topic for another time. The point is, is there are people in the Christian church who are uniquely prepared by God to go into hostile places and evangelize and preach the gospel effectively and plant churches. These are evangelists. People we send out because we trust them that they are going to effectively communicate the gospel in this scenario and begin to set up churches there. God has equipped particular people to proclaim the word of God. Now the next set of gift giftings is hard to interpret. Uh, a better way to say that is it's hard to translate. So he moves on from evangelists to shepherds and teachers. Now your Bible probably has a note that brings you down, a footnote that brings you down somewhere and talks about how in the Greek it's very difficult to know if Paul is trying to combine these two or separate them. In other words, are there two gifts here? There's the gift of being a pastor, and then there's also the gift of being a teacher. Or are they one and the same? You are gifted with being a pastor and teacher. Right? Can these be separated? And quite honestly, we just, we really don't know. It, there's really no definitive way to answer this question. I personally think that Paul intended them to be one and the same. So that we shouldn't have, in our church, we shouldn't have someone who is a teacher, but not a pastor. I think that they were meant to be joined together. And I think that not just because of the grammar of this verse, but from the rest of the Bible. But even if you want to separate them, that's fine. It's, it's not a huge deal. Uh, the, the general point is that, nonetheless, both of these giftings are still word-centered. The word pastor is the same word in our Bibles for elders. Your Bible, the ESV gives a literal interpretation, shepherd. Because that's where the word pastor comes from. The word elder, actually elder is a little different, but the word pastor comes from the word shepherd. And that really helps you see the job of a pastor, right? To guide, to discipline, to nurture, in which we learn how to do that through the word of God. And then there are also teachers, and pastors are commanded to be teachers. And what do teachers do? Teachers are those who interpret, expound, and apply the word of God. So again, we have pastors who nurture and, and guide according to the word of God. And we have teachers who interpret and expound and apply the word of God. 
Now, one more side note before we begin to, to wrap this all up is I, just because this is important for our church polity. It, it is important to know that even though pastors need to have the gift of teaching, the Bible is very clear that not every pastor, not every elder within a church has to be involved in teaching. They need to be able to, but they don't have to be doing it. And I, in the next slide, we have 1 Timothy 5. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So notice you can have ruling elders who are not actively engaged in the work of preaching and teaching, right? So I, I don't want you to think that we're like doing something wrong because Bill Hartman hasn't preached a sermon in over two years. He's, he's not called necessarily. He doesn't have to be a teacher, but it does need to be part of the office. And so, but anyway, that's a side note. To wrap it all up, Paul gives, uh, he gives a, a set of gifts that God uses to advance the church in holiness, and they're all centered around the Word of God. And so we need to see just how fundamentally important the Word of God is, the ministry of the Word of God is to your life, to your development. This is one of the reasons why the reformers at the time of the Reformation wanted to say, no, as important as the Eucharist is, it is not the foundation of the church. The, the Bible never says that it's the Eucharist that's going to get us to the fullness of Christ. It's the word-based ministries. The word is what's going to ultimately get us to the fullness of Christ. And so do you see how important it is to come to church? Do you see the way that Paul's trying to tell us that coming to church transforms you? That you come and you receive the gifts of your fellow church members. You receive the ministry of the word of God. And this is transforming you. Right? Uh, I, I think the, the reason this is so important, and I'm, I'm skipping here for time. Uh, I, I love, Charles Hodge has an interesting quote. If Christ has appointed the ministry for the edification of his body, it is vain to expect that end to be accomplished in any other way. And here's why I say that. In my pastoral ministry, I've, I've wrestled with this issue quite often, which is that I've always emphasized going to church because I believe the Bible emphasizes it. But for a lot of people, it just never, never actually lives up to the hype. I think if we are honest with ourselves in this room, most of us don't feel like church is as glorious and fun as the way the scriptures present it, or at least the way pastors tell you it should be. I, I, just, I can tell you countless people who are just broken and miserable. And one of my first things, they're depressed. And one of my first recommendations, well, you need to go to church. You need to be involved in the life of the church. And so they start. They start going. And life still sucks. Right? You show up to church and it's not that glorious. I mean, we've been going for 42 minutes now. I show up, I listen to some guy ramble for 50 minutes, struggle to keep myself awake, and then we sing a bunch of boring hymns that I don't even like. And then I go home. What's so glorious about this? What's so magical about this? It's not doing anything. I want us to understand that the Bible here is promising us. This is a divine promise. That church is transforming you. This, this is a promise. You need to decide whether you're going to believe your feelings or the promises of God. L but let me help you try to harmonize them. The reason church sometimes doesn't feel as important as it is is because in life we know that when you are part of a process of slow, steady growth, it's very hard to notice the growth. Right? Layla and I have this horrible habit we do a terrible thing. Every single night, we put our son to bed. And what's the first thing we do? 
we start looking up pictures of Matthew because we miss him already. And we love to look up the pictures that make us the most sad when he was brand new, born just yesterday. And sometimes I look at those pictures and I'm just like, when did this happen? See, Matthew doesn't look any different today to me than he did yesterday. He looks like the same kid. And yesterday, he didn't look any different to me than the way he did the day before. And if you just keep going through the logic, then he shouldn't look any different today than the day he was born, because I've never noticed a difference. Matthew doesn't look like he's growing to me. I have to see the perspective and go, oh my goodness, he is. That's why when my family visits once a year, they're just blown away at how much he's grown. I'm like, he's not any different to me than he was yesterday or the day before. You don't notice the growth when you're part of it. You realize when you're on an airplane, you're going over 500 miles per hour? Doesn't feel like it though, does it? You walk around, jump, go to the bathroom. You don't notice it. And so it's very easy for you to come to church week in and week out and go home and be like, I don't really feel like this is really doing much for me. But if God were to give you some kind of divine perspective where you could look at pictures of your spiritual condition, you would look at pictures and be amazed at how far you've come. The growth is slow and steady so you don't realize it. But I'm telling you, listening to 50-minute sermons is changing you. I'm going to try to get it down. But I promise you, it's doing something. It might not feel fun. And you probably won't, don't love every song that we pick. You probably don't look forward to going to church every single Sunday. But I promise you, according to the Word of God, it's doing something to you. You won't notice it. It's changing you. So don't forsake it. Don't forsake church. And the last thing... So we've seen that the church is trans, forgive me, the church is indefectible, it's transformative. The last thing is that church is participatory. Paul tells us that church is participatory. Another reason you should go to church, it's quite simply, because we need you. I feel like Uncle Sam, right? The old war propaganda, we need you, right? But seriously, we need you. It would be easy to neglect church if your idea of church is I just go to watch something. If church is just like a movie, like I just go to watch something and be entertained, then yeah, you could probably live without it. But what if church is more like this body and you are a member of it and if you are cut off, we bleed out? Because that's how Paul describes the church. It's not a movie that you watch. It's a body that all the joints need to come together so that we can receive life from our head. And if one of our joints are missing, we're bleeding. You have spiritual gifts that you use in church. So in other words, you don't just come to church for you. You come to church for me. And you come for Layla and Matthew. And you come for Drew and Crystal. You come to church for each other because you have gifts that we need. You're a part of the body that I'm not. And I need you and you need me. You are not just coming to be entertained. You are coming to serve each other. That's why, by the way, we call it a worship service. You're not just here to worship, you're here to serve. And you're here to be served. I cannot tell you how many times someone has come up to me during the week and they've told me about what they're going through and it's miserable and it's hard and we pray and I'm, I'm on the border of tears and then I show up to church and I see them on Sunday and I see them singing. No one has any idea what's going on, but it's changing me. It's reminding me that, you know what, my life is pretty good right now, but I know that there are bad days ahead. I know that. That's just life. I know I've got bad days ahead. Can I go to church and be happy and content when that day comes? And I think I can because I've seen you do it. Sometimes you go to church when you don't want to because I need you here. 
I need you. We have gifts that we give to each other and your gift matters. You matter to this church. You're not just coming to listen to me. But Christ has given to each of us gifts which are progressing us towards this ultimate goal. So please do not forsake the assembly of the church. Do not forsake utilizing your gifts with one another. And even more than that, I encourage us to try to spend more time with each other outside of church because our gifts are being utilized even then. We have people in your home, you're utilizing your gifts in their presence. And when we do that, when we do not forsake the assembly, when we live lives together, we eat together, we fellowship together, what we are doing is we are all helping each other take little baby steps closer and closer towards the full measure of the Lordship of Jesus. I want us to end with a Bible verse. Would you please stand? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is not on the screen. We're going to read this and then we will sing and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Let us end with this encouraging word. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. 